Liverpool Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Welcome to yet another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. Good to have you with us. And on this episode, we're going to be playing an interview that I did last year with Bert. Bert, you ask? I'm talking about Bert Thornton. Back a couple of years ago, a number of years actually, we had just finished a radio show, Jeff Pike and I. He used to record the show. We were eating at a Waffle House. We were joking around, and Jeff said, Hey, why don't you interview Bert? I guess that idea just kind of stayed in my mind for a while. For a lot of you, Waffle House may be more than a 24-hour restaurant chain. A lot of people call it an institution. Those of you who are devotees of Waffle House know that the distinction is important. Hash browns are topped with not just any chili, Bird's chili. So I set out on contacting the real-life Bird. I found him to be a very interesting man. He started out in Waffle House the same way everyone else does. He did the dishes, he took the orders of the diners, he cooked the eggs, he flipped the hamburgers, he made the waffles. He did it all. Soon enough, he was one of the leaders of the company, the chief operations officer, and now he's retired, but he's been passing on some of the knowledge he gained in his book called Find an Old Gorilla. We're going to get into the book in just a few minutes. This interview got a lot of listens from people. One person wrote in and they said, Thank you for this. I used to work for Waffle House and this interview is great. I had the pleasure of meeting Bert Thornton. I worked with him one time, Halloween night, 1996. I was called to a unit where no one showed up for third shift. Bert Thornton, Joe Jr., and Lib Julian, Lib being behind Lib's patty melt, came and staffed the unit with the district manager and I. Bert waited tables, Lib Julian cooked, and Joe Jr. washed dishes. Yes, the president of the company washed the dishes. They were incredible. That night was life-changing. I don't look at bosses or companies the same way and never will. People listening to this interview hoping to find the secret to Waffle House's success, I'll tell you, they work for it. They go there. They aren't too good to wash dishes. It matters. Also, get a fried egg and a tomato slice on your $1 original hamburger with cheese. Well, thanks for the tip and thanks for writing in. I'm not going to take up any more of your time. Let's get into the interview with Bert Thornton. Ladies and gentlemen, on this episode of the Paul Leslie Hour, we're welcoming Bert Thornton. Mr. Bert Thornton is the retired president and COO of Waffle House Incorporated. He is also author of the book, Find an Old Gorilla, in the hearts and minds of many hungry diners eating at Waffle House morning, noon, or night. He is known as Bert. Yes, he is that Bert, the Bert behind Bert's Chili. Thanks so much for joining us. Paul, it's great to be with you. It's an honor. I think most stories are best from the beginning. Where are you from? Well, I was born in New Orleans, but I was raised in Tampa, Florida, and uh, went to college in Atlanta at Georgia Tech, and have spent most of my life in the southeast. New Orleans. So how did, you said you were born there, but you grew up in Tampa. 
How did New Orleans come to be your birthplace? My dad was in the Army. Okay. And he had to be stationed in New Orleans temporarily. So I was there for exactly one year and don't remember much about it. <laughs> so tell us about your parents. What kind of influence did they have on your life? Well, they were wonderful folks. My dad was uh, operations manager for Likes Brothers Steamship Company in Tampa. At that time, it was the largest commercial shipping fleet under the American flag. My mother was an orthopedic nurse for a fellow named Albert Wilson, who was president of the Florida Orthopedic Association and was one of the pioneers of the total knee replacement. Mother was just a wonderful homemaker, and my daddy was one of the most forthright men I've ever known. He was just, Abe Lincoln said one time famously, nobody gets lost on a straight road. He stayed on a straight road. So what was the house like? If you could paint a picture growing up. Well, the house was not as large as most folks' houses are. My sister and I shared a bedroom until I got a little too big to do that. And then they added on a room to the house, but I guess the house basically was about 1,200, maybe 1,300 square feet. But very nice, very well appointed, very comfortable and just a very nice place to grow up. And if you could paint a picture of like what the, the, the daily life was like on a typical day, what would it look like? Well, I'm much like everyone who's listening here. I'm sure it, w- it wasn't that uh, spectacular. I got up in the morning. Uh, I ate breakfast. I went to school. Actually walked to school. We did that back in those days. School was about a mile away, and... I had several friends in the neighborhood. We joined up, walked to school, and walked home. After that, depending on what age and stage I was at, I would either play with my friends or later on when I played uh, sports, I would stay after school, practice sports, whether it was basketball or football. Daddy would come pick me up, and we'd go home and have dinner and get ready to do it all over again. Tell us about your first awareness, your first time where you came in contact with Waffle House? Sure. I I went to Georgia Tech. I have a fraternity brother named Joe Rogers, whose father was one of the founders of Waffle House. He and a fellow named Tom Fortner. Tom today is 99. Pop, Joe Rogers Sr., we call him Pop, is 98. They're both still going strong. And I had never been in a Waffle House, when Joe called me one day and said, we're going to get into the Waffle House business and try and take this entrepreneurial effort that Pop and Tom put together to a regional, national presence. And he and another fraternity brother of mine, a fellow named Dan Graham, wanted me to come up to Atlanta and talk to him about joining the company. At the time, I was... Uh, selling, I was a systems analyst in the selling computers for uh, NCR in their IT division. So I flew up there and the next thing I knew I was flipping eggs and turning hamburgers. The first time I was ever in a Waffle House was after that phone call. I thought I better go look and see what this thing looks like. So I went to a Waffle House in Tampa, the Waffle House out on Bush Boulevard to be accurate. 
I walked in and sat down and had breakfast, and I thought, this is pretty cool. And uh, I went to Atlanta and joined up. Can you remember the first thing you ate at a Waffle House? It was just a breakfast. Just breakfast? Yeah, I don't remember what it was. The fellow handed me the menu. I knew I'd be able to get breakfast at a Waffle House. And I looked, and I think I got a couple of eggs over light and some bacon and toast and grits, and that was it. But what really uh, enchanted me was the atmosphere inside. They were very busy. People were very happy. I was right there at shift change at 7 o'clock, and so they had the first shift coming on and the third shift going off. There was just a whole lot going on, and it, it was just, there was a lot of magic, a lot of pixie dust behind that counter and interactions with the customers. It was, it was really, really a neat thing. What job would you say that you had early on that best prepared you for life? Well, I haven't had many jobs. I did a little work as a laborer with my uncle's construction company, and I did the IT thing with NCR, and I've done Waffle House. With that, ex- with the exception of some time spent in the Army, that's sort of my work history. What really prepared me for life was my football experience. I played junior high school, high school, and, of course, college football at Georgia Tech. and the lessons that I learned about playing with hardship, playing with a little pain, sustaining under pressure, those were great lessons for me. And they set sort of the backdrop for the way that I would do business and run my life. Hmm. When you mentioned a while ago about kind of diving in, flipping the burgers, all the things you did, making the eggs, all that stuff... What did you find that experience to be like? Well, it was a little frightening at first. I don't know if you've ever tried to flip an egg, but your first effort usually is not the most successful effort. The first time I tried to work with a waffle baker, I burned myself, still have the scar on my left forearm, and that was 45 years ago. I think everything that I did early on with Waffle House was a little frenetic. It was, I actually went to work with Waffle House's largest franchisee. The idea was that Joe Rogers, my fraternity brother, would go to the parent company where he ended up being president and is now chairman, and he would straighten them out. And I would go with another fraternity brother of mine named Charlie Ammons, and we would go with the largest franchisee and sort of straighten them out. That was a very naive approach, but that's kind of the way we looked at it. Come to find out that the franchisee didn't want to be straightened out. So they had their way of doing things, which was very, pretty disorganized early on. And they employed some people that you and I probably wouldn't invite home to dinner. And it was almost the diametric of the parent company. One other thing, the reason I join Waffle House. Most folks don't know that Waffle House is employee-owned. It's owned by the waitresses, the cooks, the maintenance techs, the secretaries. If you draw a check at Waffle House, you have an opportunity to become an owner. And the idea was that I was going to go to this franchise and get the same deal. That never came to fruition. 
the fellow who was running the parent company, which at that time was called Quick Foods Incorporated, later transitioned into a company called Northlake Foods. Their idea was that you, you just sort of worked until you got tired of it and then went and did something else. So they reneged on my promise for stock. And so I left. I worked for him for two years and then left and then got a call from Joe Rogers. And he said he was on vacation, wanted to come down to Tampa. I had just recently been married. He wanted to come down to Tampa and talk about getting together and me going back into business and Waffle House. And I said, well, I'm probably not going to do that, but come on down and we'll, we'll chat. Well, once again, the next thing I knew, I was flipping eggs and turning hamburgers in, in Atlanta working for the parent company, and it was like day and night. One of the really great experiences of my life and lasted for over 40 years. I swear that anybody who has ever worked at a restaurant, no matter what you've done, if you're a waiter, if you're a cook, it's like a fraternity. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I, you have to respect, <clears throat> if you've done the job, you have to respect people who work at a restaurant. Well, let me tell you something about restaurant people. They are crazy. <laughs> yes. Me included. Um, <clears throat> but honestly, when you look at people who work in restaurants, they're wonderful, wonderful people. But they all seem to have a, a single flaw. Hmm. Now, in the broad spectrum of things, that flaw, that flaw is not very wide, but it's pretty deep. And if you ever find a restaurant person without that flaw, that person is not very successful or going to be very successful. There's something about, um, there's just a little piece of their life that, that they're really, as my dad used to say, a half a, half a bubble off a full plum that, that just kind of a crazy part of their life that just really fits with them in the restaurant business. It's not a bad thing. It's a great thing. And I have seen it in every great restaurant operator I've had the, the pleasure to work with. So, yeah, it's like a fraternity. They're all there sort of joined up to take care of the customer. And, and that's really the primary thing rather than the business. It's just that interaction with the customers and the pleasure of seeing them have a great time and get exactly what they want. It seems like you've thought a lot about that. Well, you were telling me the, just a second ago about there's there's just something slightly... <laughs> I've spent a lot of time working at restaurants, so I know what you're talking about. I never heard it put that way. <laughs> well, you could probably find that in any industry, any endeavor. Um, you know, I, I, I think if you look at IT people and salesmen, if you look at IT people and salesmen or any any field, everybody has their little, little idiosyncratic traits. But in the restaurant business, it seems to surface if you look for it hmm. and, and know to look for it. It'll surface and you'll say, uh-huh, okay. <laughs> so on that note, what do you think makes for a good restaurant person? Well... My sense of it is that the best restaurant people have a you-first attitude, whether it's you-first, you the customer first, or you-first, you the associate first. 
the best folks I've ever dealt with had these priorities. Customer first, business second, themselves a distant third. Hmm. You were talking earlier about Joe Rogers Sr. Tell us about what Mr. Rogers taught you. Well, Pop, Pop's an interesting story. He worked for an organization called Tottle House. You may be too young to have ever heard of Tottle House, but it was very big in the Southeast. It was owned by the Smith family, Mr. Fred Smith Sr., and based out of Memphis, and Pop ran the eastern seaboard from Baltimore to Fort Lauderdale. And he decided that since he couldn't get stock in the title house, he was going to go build a company that was employee-owned and owner-managed. And one of the tenets of Waffle House, of course, is that you can buy stock and be an owner. So he started this company and literally put Title House out of business. They morphed into something called Dobbs House, and that morphed into an airline catering business. But you don't feel too bad for the Smith family because Fred Smith, who is now senior, but then Fred Smith Jr., Pop calls him Little Freddie. Heard him, heard him call him on the phone. Little Freddie one time is now the, the chairman and CEO of Federal Express. I couldn't believe it when Joe Jr., and Fred Smith were talking on the phone, and Pop walked in, and I was sitting there. And Pop picked up the phone and said, Is that you, little Freddie? The chairman of Federal Express. Funny story. When my dad passed away, Pop sort of came in and threw his arm around me. And he was a, he was a good mentor, not a full-time mentor, but a part-time mentor for me. And he had a couple of really honest conversations with me at the right time, and I learned a lot from him about how to take care of people. Hmm. We're talking with Bert Thornton, Vice Chairman Emeritus of Waffle House. I've taken quite a few people to their very first Waffle House experience, including people new to the United States. What do you think makes Waffle House different from other restaurants? Well, it's the experience, of course. I mean, you... You can buy a hamburger and scrambled eggs in a lot of places. And you can buy a good hamburger and a good breakfast in several places. But when you walk into a Waffle House on Saturday morning and it's busy and the orders are flying and that jukebox, music machine, I call it jukebox, is playing the Waffle House song or Raisins in My Toast or Waffle House Lady, you don't get that anyplace else. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, when you go into a Waffle House, and I know you've been there, <laughs> it's a whole different it's a whole different deal. I have friends who go in at 3 in the morning just to see the show. <laughs> and it can be pretty exciting sometimes. But it's the experience. It's not what you eat. It's what you see, feel, and hear that really turns you on to the Waffle House. Although the food is spectacular. I mean, our food is is great. I eat it in a Waffle House two or three times a week still after eating in a Waffle House for over 40 years because the food is great, and I love the people. I was watching the clip last night of the chef, Anthony Bourdain, where... Isn't that he, crazy? Yeah. 
here he is being initiated. The guy's telling him, here's the lowdown on Waffle House, and then he tastes it for the first time. What did you think of that? Oh, I, I thought it was how ironic that here's this guy who eats all over the world, and he goes to Waffle House and basically says, where have I been? Why have I not experienced this before? And as he said, when he tasted that all-star breakfast he was tied into, he said, this is as good as the French laundry. <laughs> little different price structure. <laughs> you know, you, let me, let me, you asked me something. Something just came to mind because you asked me about Pop, Joe Rogers Sr., about the job that he did helping me along. His son, Joe Rogers Jr., was really the, my main business mentor. My father was my first mentor. And I had some football coaches that, that really helped me along, too, in a, in a mentoring position. But business-wise, Joe Jr., my fraternity brother, he's the guy who really sort of honed my business competence. He taught me about strategic evaluation and tactical execution. And much of what is in the book that we'll talk about in a minute, much of that knowledge was gleaned from conversations with him. And I think it was both ways. I think he learned some things from me, but he was a, he is a, an excellent businessman. And matter of fact, somebody asked me one time, they said, how can I become successful? And I said, well, you find a guy like Joe Rogers and you stand next to him and you listen. <laughs> it worked for me. Anyone who has visited a Waffle House more than a few times, they probably have at least one story from a visit of an interesting character, something that happened. I can remember one time walking into a Waffle House and just the story in itself was just the eclectic crowd. There was a couple of kids dressed up in formal wear who had been to a dance. Uh, there's a guy with like a semi-mohawk walks in and picks something on the music player. And then there's a guy with cowboy boots and a, exactly. a cowboy hat. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty homogenous group. And nobody um, bets an eye. <laughs> yeah. I was in our Waffle House. We number them when we build them. This is Waffle House number 60, and it's uh, over... It's no longer there. It's now a big shopping center. It was off of Piedmont, right across from another place that's not there anymore, which was a gentleman's club called the Gold Club. I've, I've always wondered why they call it gentleman's club. Uh, we, we like to call it the shoe show. Yeah. <laughs> so I walked in. It was 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm sorry. It was not 2 o'clock in the morning. It was 6 o'clock in the morning. And... We had the night crowd in the jeans and the T-shirts, and then we had the, the, the neon night crowd and the super dressed up, but not cocktail attire, but the, you know, <laughs> the, the get-down boogie stuff in, in another booth. And then we had a bouncer from the gold club and some of the dancers in another booth and sitting right next to them in a booth was Maynard Jackson, who was then the mayor of Atlanta, and three city council members going over city business. And I thought to myself, how can it get any better than this? I mean, you've got, you've got 
slices from every part of life right here at one place right here in the Waffle House. There are so many stories I could tell you, and there are many more that I can't tell you. <laughs> one of these days when you and I are having a glass of iced tea and lunch at a Waffle House and, and aren't on the air, I'll tell you some stories that'll make you really laugh, but, <laughs> but they're not for family use. But one of the stories that I think is, is really funny, when I first got started this business, and I, everybody starts the same way. You start washing dishes over that Hobart, which is now a champion dishwasher. And you learn how to flip eggs and turn hamburgers, and you learn to how to waitress or waiter and take care of the customer. And then you manage a restaurant. You don't come in and go straight to three or four, or eight or ten restaurants. Even if you've had a lot of experience with other restaurant chains, you come in and you start at the base entry level, which is standing over that dishwasher. That's good because, you know, once you get in the line, nobody's going to come in over the top of you. Now, they may outwork you and pass you by, but, but that's kind of a local problem. So there I was at my first restaurant, number 66, which is no longer there. It's right at the intersection of 285 and 85 at Spaghetti Junction on Oakhurst. I think the building's still there, but I think now it's an enterprise car place or something like that. But the story is that I had a waitress there named Maybell. True. Her name was Maybell. And her favorite recording artist was Merle Haggard. When Merle Haggard was in Atlanta, he always came and had breakfast with us at Wild House number 66 every morning. Every morning he was in Atlanta. And it she just absolutely went to pieces when that happened. I was there one time when he came in, and I said, holy smoke, that's Merle Haggard. And this gal said, not Maybell, but the other waitress said, said, yeah. And she said, I'm going to have to go wait on him because Maybell can't do it. She, she can't function around him. <laughs> and sure enough, she got over there, and she started dropping dishes and dropped the menu in his lap and what have you. And this other gal had to go take care of him. But I went over just to make sure and introduce myself. And it was in fact, Merle Haggard, but Maybell would go to the back and, and stay in the back room until he left. And then she'd come out and give him a hug at the front door. And then she'd go back to work and she'd be just fine. Crazy well, story. There have been a lot of country artists who have had an affinity, not just country. You know, you're on the road, you need a hot meal. Waffle House is always there. <laughs> yeah. And celebrities of all kinds. When uh, the Atlanta Braves went to the World Series, and I don't remember the catcher's name at the time, but he ate breakfast with us every morning at the Waffle House out there on, oh, my goodness. It's out there by the Galleria, and I can't remember the number. But whenever they played in town, he would eat breakfast there, you know, Athletes are very superstitious, and mm. that was one of his superstitions. Well, when they played the World Series and they played out of town, he made his dad go sit in that same seat and eat breakfast for him to keep the superstition alive. And the, the crazy thing was every everybody knew that was his seat. Nobody would sit in that seat around that time of the morning 
because that was the catcher's seat. That was, you know, it, that was the, the whole family, customers and associates together knew that that was, that was that guy's seat. And until he had breakfast, nobody else could sit in. <laughs> That's great. So we're hearing from Bert himself. So give us some recommendations. What should people drink at Waffle House? What should they eat for dinner? What should they eat for a dessert? Just a couple of things. Sure. Drink what you like. I I told somebody the other day, I used to have fun. Now I have rules. And one of the rules at 72 is no caffeine. <laughs> so I drink decaf coffee, but usually wherever I go, I just drink water. So the real, the, the iced tea is terrific. Alice's iced tea is unbeatable. And, of course, Coca-Cola, the way we serve it, you can get a vanilla Coke, a cherry Coke. Those are all great. But the food, there, there are three or four things, I think, that you just can't get any place else. They're, they're kind of, in the restaurant business, it's called a hook item, something that you serve that nobody else can. It's probably the same thing when you go to a restaurant for a specific dish. It's something that you like at that restaurant that nobody else can match. Here's one, our chicken sandwich. That chicken is a whole boneless breast of marinated chicken. It's grilled, not fried. It's skinless. It's low-cal, and it's seasoned. It's not hot, but the seasoning is is really a special seasoning. And on a chicken sandwich with a little Thousand Island dressing or our new Chipotle dressing, that's a super sandwich. I think our double-quarter cheeseburger is the best hamburger in America. I like the hamburger, but the double quarter cheese is special. Here's another one, and this is my favorite lately, and that is the Texas cheesesteak melt. And the way I get it is, I only get one piece of cheese. It comes with two. I get one piece of cheese, and it comes with grilled onions, and I have them add grilled jalapenos to it. And I think that is absolutely one of the best sandwiches that we have. For breakfast, the all-star special, tough to beat, one of our most popular items. And then, and then of course, the chili's pretty good. Absolutely, the chili, bird chili. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and what a bargain the all-star is. Isn't that crazy? I don't know how they do it. <laughs> well, they do it hundreds of times a day, every day. I don't know. We sell 11 million bowls of chili a year. I don't know how many all-stars we sell, but I'm sure it's a, a lot more than 11 million. We're talking with Bert Thornton, the Vice Chairman Emeritus of Waffle House. Good food fast. You also wrote the book Find an Old Gorilla. Who did you write the book for? Well, I wrote it for you, and I wrote it for anyone who's listening who is trying to figure out what to do next. The sort of by title on the book is The Rising High Achiever's Guide to What to Do Next. I have mentored a lot of people, as probably you have, and these folks listening have spent a lifetime giving people advice about what they should do next. But I've mentored certainly hundreds of Waffle House folks. I've mentored folks at Georgia Tech, not only students, but faculty and staff and alumni alike. And I realized one day that I was not going to be able to sit across the table from everybody who had questions I felt I could answer. And so I took 
a couple of files that I had developed over the years. One file was the notes that I had taken in mentoring sessions with all of my folks that, that I did mentor. The other file was articles that I had read that really resonated with me and uh, just quips and quotes and notes. And these files had gotten pretty thick over the years. So I sort of melded them. I put them together and wrote this book for people who were trying to figure out what was really important to them in life at this time, trying to figure out where they really wanted to go and how to find people to get them there. And that's what this book is all about. It's a book about how to lift you out of the fog when you say, what is really going on in my life? And how can I make sense of this? What do I really want to do? Then once you sort of get that nailed down, how do I go about finding somebody who can help me get exactly what I want for myself and my family? It's not strictly a book about uh, business performance. It's also a book about life performance. I was talking with somebody today, actually, and they asked me about the book, and I said, you know, it's a, it's a book also about leadership. And this person said, well, I'm, I'm really beyond leadership. I'm retired. And I said, not so. You lead people in your family. You lead people in your neighborhood, in your church. More people look up to you than you imagine. And this book is not just about business leadership. It's about leadership with the folks around you if, in fact, they want to listen to you and hear what you have to say. One of the things about the book is it's very short. It's sweet and to the point. It's just like there were certain things that were very simple. I knew them to be true that, you know, sometimes I forgot. There's things in there about don't forget to fuel yourself each morning, get breakfast, and then also the process of finding a mentor, what to look for in a mentor. What do you find are that people, what piece of advice or what tidbit in the book is most resonating with people? Sure, that's a great question. And my best friend and golfing buddy, a fellow named Dan Gravely, who was president of the uh, what is now the Georgia Dome, the uh, Georgia World Congress Center. Georgia World Congress Center for 34 years through five governors. He read it and he said, you know what I liked about it? I said, what? He said, he said it's to the point. He said, usually when I read a book like that, I, I get to page 120 and say, when is this guy going to get to the point? <laughs> but he said, it's very succinct. It's not a wasted word. And that's and that is not an accident. I did not intend to write a novel. I intended to let people turn to a certain section which was troubling them and read a very succinct interpretation of what I feel they ought to be doing to fix it. And the main points that I think resonate with people are one, that it's the realization that we're really not in charge. When I talk about the fact that it's important to understand that help is available if you ask for it, 
And I don't mean that in a religious way, but I, I encourage people to pray at the end of the day when they turn that light out. Because, and again, it's not a religious concept, but in case you haven't noticed, we aren't in charge. All of the cultures in the world understand that there's a greater force at work, and it's called by many different names, God, Jesus, Brahman, Muhammad, Allah, Buddha. But every culture says that we are not in charge. So it would be nice at the end of the day to ask for help with the things that are not working for you and be grateful for the things that are. If you think you're in charge, consider this. Since you've been listening to me talk, how many times have you told yourself to breathe? Pretty important feature, but you don't even think about it. You, you, you breathe 17,000 times a day and never think about a single one of them. You pump 2,000 gallons of blood through your heart every day and never think about a single beat. Your eyes, if you didn't blink, they would dry up and be painfully useless. And yet, you blink on average every six seconds. And if you think you're in charge, stop blinking for a couple of minutes and see what happens. So that's, that's one of the first things is the idea that when you commit yourself to the fact that you're not in charge and at least not of everything, you're certainly in charge of your life in terms of decisions and, and consequences. But if you sort of give yourself over to the idea that when you're in trouble, if you just ask for help, it'll be there. I, I ask people all the time, have you ever gone to bed at night with a problem heavy on your heart? No answer in sight. Went to sleep somewhere in the middle of the night. The answer came to you. You woke up the next morning. You had the answer, and you never knew where it came from. You still don't know where it came from. And they say, yes, that's happened to me. And, and I say, but you thought you were the only one. So help is available if we ask for it. The other thing that resonates with folks on a big-time basis is the idea of giving things away anonymously. And I think that is the most important of the basic laws of success in Chapter 5. If you frequently give away things of value anonymously, that means you don't talk about it, it comes back to you tenfold. I always talk about the fellows with the funny caps, the Shriners, yeah. who stand in the middle of the street. Do you think on the first beautiful spring, weekend morning. The only thing those guys have to do is stand in the middle of the street and beg money for burning crippled children. Give them a dollar. It's just a dollar, but don't tell anybody that about it. That's, that's where the power comes from. I know a family that every year on the first freezing day of winter calls all the elementary schools in the neighborhood and asks one question. Who are the kids who came to school today with no coats? Because if it's 32 degrees outside and a child comes to school with no coat, there's only one reason why. The child has no coat. So they get these names and sizes and genders, and they go to Walmart and other places and buy these kids' jackets, and they put them in big plastic trash bags after they pin the child's name on it and take it up to the school around lunchtime and just drop it off and walk out, and nobody knows who they are, 
and they get to the top of those steps, walking down those steps, that what's in their heart makes the rest of the day very powerful. And if they do that kind of thing frequently, it makes their life very powerful. That's great. One of the other things that you mentioned in the book is that when you turned 40, you got the idea to interview people in their 50s to ask them what the decade of their 40s looked like. How did you get that idea, and did what any one or more people said to you change the course of your future? You know, that that is a great question. And for someone who has never done that, I, I think it's it's sort of a life-changing experience. The way I got the idea, nobody told me to do that. The way I got the idea is what I call a BFO, a blinding flash of the obvious. One day I said, you know, all these ships go through the same channels. A gal named Gail Sheehy wrote a book about it called Passages. And she says for the four basic personality groups, at every age, we all encounter the same basic human issues. The byline on the book was passages, predictable crises of the adult life. So I thought, well, you know, I just need to pick out, I'm coming up on my 40s. I need to pick out some guys who've been through the 40s and ask them, what's it like? What am I going to encounter? And, and you're right. I mean, it's been so successful at every decade I've done it. And some of the advice has been funny and some of the advice has, has, has really been strategic for me. But the things that these folks have told me, both men and women, and I usually interview four or five, sometimes six, over lunch, the things that they told me didn't really change my life in that it gave me these fabulous ideas. It sort of helped me stay a stable course and know that when I encountered something I, I was, I'm not the first guy in line for this. This is something that other people have faced and it's predictable. And so deal with it, cope with it and get on. Why do you think that some people make it in life or in success and some people don't? Oh, I, I think it's a, a combination of things. It's, I think genetics has a lot to do with it, but that, but not certainly not completely. You look at successful people and you see all kinds of genetically formed folks. Background has a lot to do with it, but not completely. Education has a lot to do with it, but not completely. Because the world is full of educated derelicts <laughs> and uh, in addition to educated success stories. I think the key things are attitude. As I say in the book, your attitude is the single most observed thing about you more than your fancy clothes, your flashy car, and your amazing good looks. Attitude is what people see. Certainly your focus, your ability to avoid distractions and focus on what you're really trying to get done. Drive. Perseverance is another term for drive. Critical. When things are getting crazy, perseverance is what gets you through. And then the last thing I think would, would be resiliency. And what that means is the ability to recover from some calamity, large or small, regroup, refocus, and move on. Those are 
most of the successful people that I know, the really successful ones have all of those traits in, some, in varying degrees. But all of the successful people that I know have most of those traits. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're talking today with Bert Thornton, retired president and COO of Waffle House. What are you most grateful for? Paul, at the end of the day, it's family, friends, and health. My three daughters, who are all very successful in their endeavors, I used to tell them, anything you can fix with money is not a real problem, <laughs> even if you don't have the money. The real problems are problems that can't be fixed with money. So when you get a little age on you, you realize that the most important things in life are your family, the friends around you, and your health, and the health of your family and friends. That's what I'm grateful for, because it's been good. We have worked hard to make it good, but those are the things that are important to me. Going through this life as you, what is the best thing about living life as Bert Thornton? <laughs> Now, that's a great question. I, I tell you what, I stay happy. I work at it. I like people, and they seem to like me. So life as Bert Thornton is just going through the day, helping other people out, and having fun with them and taking care of my family, my friends, and my business. What makes you happiest? Oh, my goodness. Helping... Others and helping family, I think, is at the top of the list right now. I think it's important if you have a degree of success in life that you have good coattails for other people to ride. So I spend a lot of time working with other folks trying to help them succeed. I work tremendously on two ends of the education spectrum because I think in America today, I think that is really one of the critically problematic issues that we have right now. So I have a board role with a charter public elementary school, elementary and middle school now, called the Museum School of Avondale Estates in DeKalb County, Georgia, and spend a lot of time and money trying to get those kids started off right. And then I work on the other end. I have a board role with the Georgia Tech Foundation where we work to get folks out of the academic phase and into the productive phase of life and business. So th those are critical issues for me. For anyone who's listening, man, woman, boy, girl, young, old, whoever is listening to us, what would you say to them? Well, I'd say read the book. Find an old gorilla. The title is, is a little crazy, but the premise is that if you wake up one morning and discover you have to go through a jungle, it would make sense to find an old gorilla and take him or her along because they know where all the good paths are and also the quicksand. So I would say read the book. It has the potential to change your life in a positive way. And then based on what you get out of the book, let that direct you to finding a mentor to get what you want out of life. My last question. 
Who is Bert Thornton? <laughs> Bert Thornton is everything we just talked about. <laughs> As my best bud, Dan Graveling, who I mentioned just a few minutes ago, used to say, it's a great life if you don't weaken. Get out there and enjoy it. Before we close, I just wanted to tell you something. My wife is from Romania, and the first time I, I took her to Waffle House, she said, I don't know about this place. And then we went a couple times, and she would get off of work, and she would go to get a coffee. And then one day, we were driving by a Waffle House, and we had just passed one maybe a mile ago. And she said, you know, every Waffle House you go to is pretty much the same. And there's something beautiful about that. <laughs> well, I think that is one of the things that we work very hard to generate. One of the things that I constantly hear about Waffle House is that you know exactly what you're going to get when you walk in the front door, whether it's Key Largo or St. Louis <laughs> or Goodyear, Arizona or Fort Worth, Texas. It's the same experience. It's the same food. And I got to tell you, Paul, we got a lot of people who lay awake at night trying to figure out how to make that happen every day. <laughs> well, Bert, sir, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing with us. It's an honor. My pleasure, and I appreciate your time. Thank you. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment and Media. The Paul Leslie theme song composed, recorded, and produced by Jeff Pike. Outro music, composed, recorded, and produced by John Goodwin, originally appearing in the short film Malukas and Vulnerable Jelly Things. Please consider subscribing to the Paul Leslie Hour, and if you like us, give us a review. It'll help other people to find this content. All past interviews are also available on YouTube. For more information, you can visit thepaulleslie.com and be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Paul Leslie. Thanks for listening. Be good. <laughs>